Hi, Lars here. So just a brief message before we get into this episode. So this is a live recording. Our, I think it's our very first live podcast recording. And it's from Codebeam Europe in Berlin, where the Codebeam folks were kind enough to get us a sit down with Jose Lim and Sasha Yurich for 30 minutes on stage to kind of dig in to fully utilizing the beam. Now, where else can you hear Sasha speak? Well, let's uh, let's promote. So Code Beam America in San Francisco is in the beginning of March. Trainings on the 5th. Uh, talks begin on the 7th. And Sasha will be speaking. You will also hear from our very own Bruce Tate and a whole other pile of fantastic speakers. You will find a decent chunk of our recent guests actually speak. So early bird tickets are still available as I record this. And uh, I really hope you enjoy our chat on Codebeam. Thanks. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Special episode straight from Codebeam Europe in Berlin. I'm Lars Wiekman, and I have two very special guests to introduce. So first, the creator of Elixir and chief adoption officer at Dashbit. So give a warm round of applause and a warm welcome to Jose Valim. Thank you. <clears throat> and then we come to the person that we all use to convince other people to use Elixir. <laughs> the author of Elixir in Action and the person and speaker who showed us the soul of Erlang and Elixir. Another warm round of applause and warm welcome to Sasha Juric. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you both back on the show. Very welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you for coming. So, the topic that I wanted to take on when I had the opportunity to kind of pick both of your brains is kind of what remains. Where could we go in the future? Because Elixir and Phoenix has taken what Erlang has built up and kind of pushed it further. And explored it more fully, like we thoroughly exploit the near real-time facilities. We use the concurrency heavily. We do a bunch of message passing, all good stuff. Like we have things like live dashboard that start to use the introspection and observability. We have things like Broadway that kind of push the beam functionality, like the things that the beam can do forward and kind of make them more accessible to people, more easy to use, more capable. What are next steps? What are parts of the Beam? Because the Beam can do a ton. And what are parts that we are not fully exploiting yet, not fully utilizing? Where do you think the community should explore and go and build further? You want to take it? Yeah, just a straight answer would be nice. I, yeah, no, I, ha I have a... <laughs> Copilot answer, which is um, it's really like you're asking the wrong person. <laughs> Maybe Sasha is the answer, but uh, well, what I always say is that um, you know, like Elixir was designed to be extensible, 
and being extensible on top of a great platform, as, as you're pointing out, is, it was a, a, a good choice. And so it means that anybody can get Elixir and expand it to whatever domain, to whatever area they want. And so for me, like, who needs to answer this question? It's like the 400 people here in this room. Like, you are the one who says, here's where I want to take it next. Because if you were to ask me, like, um, 10 years ago, I would never have come up with nerves, for example. I would never yeah. say like, oh, Elixir is going to be good for embedded software because it just, it's not because, you know, it isn't. It's just because it's not something that I think about or worry about. Um, I wouldn't have thought about Membrane and use, using Elixir and Erlang to build these like audio video processing pipelines. And when you look at it, it's like, oh yeah, that, it, it makes a lot of sense, but it's not something that where my mind is at. Um, and yeah, so I, I will start with my, I will start giving the hot potato to Sasha, <laughs> and then we can circle back. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> so uh, yeah, what he said, but no, uh, uh, I mean, th there is definitely sense in that, uh, what you said, Jose, that like uh, users or people uh, who basically, you know, use the language should, should, uh, take it in various directions and really th there have been some unusual stuff like when I think about uh, what was the state uh, 10 years ago and so uh, th that's really cool. So that being said, you know, for, from my point of view, I definitely see a lot of room for improvement in like this uh, ops space, so to speak, uh, where we, you know, so like these days uh, I hear from people saying uh, that like Elixir is kind of like a Kubernetes at the language level. Uh, back when I was starting with, with Beam, uh, with, with Erlang, you know, then uh, the saying was that Erlang is an OS for your code, and I think that like these are basically the same statements. And so whatever we typically fall back on to the OS level or to the Kubernetes level, for example, is to me the question, why, why don't we do it in the language, right? Uh, because that makes many things simpler. So uh, like the foundational pieces are most certainly there. So we can do, you know, this distributed programming and whatnot. Uh, but when it comes to anything similar to, to what we have in Kubernetes, uh, like if I wanted to say, like, I have a couple of Erlang nodes and, I, you know, they all run the same code, for example. And so I want to, like, have some services or some, you know, gen servers, if you will, that, you know, some smartness is going to be uh, spreading those things around and, you know, starting and stopping them depending on the load patterns and whatnot. Uh, that's basically, you know, just requires a lot of manual re-implementation, right? So we're kind of missing uh, uh, those higher level things, which I think could be very, very useful and uh, which could simplify uh, development in many cases. Because for me, it's always like, what does it take to build a system, to take it to production and be like a production-ready system, independent of like the domain, uh, of the business domain or even the scale or complexity. And so these days, it still takes in my view, too many technologies and too many things need to be learned, and we have too many. We need too many different experts in different areas to get there. And uh, the table could have more roles, right? Yes. 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 <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> so, for those who uh, who are not aware, uh, Sasha, in his book, he wrote a table comparing Erlang with other technologies, and the table pretty much goes like, oh, web server 
And in, in one column, it's like, so we have one row, web server. And then one column says, in Erlang, you use Erlang. And then in another stack, you're going to use Ruby. Yep. And then if you have like, a, oh, uh, in memory cache. And then uh, for the Erlang column, the answer is still Erlang. And then in the other technology, you would say Redis, right? Mm. And then uh, what else do you have on the table? Uh, well, there was the, the reverse proxy thing, right? So uh, in many yeah. cases that I've had, we just use stock, you know, either yeah. that back then mm. was Cowboy, it was Phoenix. By the way, just to make, sh make it clear, this is a true story, that table. You know, how many people did read that book and seen that table? <laughs> you know, so yeah, so it's a true story. It's not a contrived story, right? So like I was working on these two things side by side, and when it hit <coughs> me, like how, m how much we have to improvise in the land of, and uh, it's not about Ruby, it's about pretty much any non-Beam language, you know, how much we had to improvise around some stuff that was lacking in the foundation, and how much was there, you know, uh, in er Erlang back in the day, you know, in Elixir, uh, as well, or Gleam, any other language, then, then it hit me, you know, that, that's when I went all in for, basically, for Beam, you know, mm -hmm. and never, never looked back again, yeah. So, so that, that table can definitely be expanded. I, I, I think there's, like, a lot of room for improvement there. That's a lot of hard work, though. Uh, but I, I would wish to see taking us in, some, in that direction. You know, at one event I spoke, uh, uh, I think it was prior to pandemic, that like, I would like to see an SQL database uh, written in, in a Beam language, right? So something that, that mm. like, think about what it takes today to, to use an SQL database. Like, you have to manage like Postgres or whatever you're using somewhere on the side. And then you have to deal with the impedance mismatch, which, you know, is always like takes a lot of, uh, like you, you, you worked on Ecto a lot, right? So you know how, how much effort was uh, done on, on just you know mapping the types, for example, right? And uh, just you know managing this thing on the side. So like, what if I could have an SQL database which I just you know start link somewhere in the supervision tree? You know, uh, it doesn't have to be like uh, super scalable or be super fast, you know. But for many needs, uh, I think this could be a, a, a nice start. And like we have you know these 15 minutes demos. I, I would like to see a 15 minute demo that just you know builds a full production. Uh, together with ops and everything in uh, Erlang, Elixir, Gleam, you know, in like 15 minutes without anything else, you know, just mix, pH, mix new, you know, and adds a few dependencies and just starts a few processes and, and it works like production ready. I think that would be cool, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe, you know, it, it may take a little bit of thinking out of the box as well. Maybe it's not even a SQL database, but a database that is designed differently to best mm -hmm. leverage all the the properties that we have uh, yeah. from the virtual machine at the runtime, mm -hmm. I think can uh, definitely be interesting. And people from the audience who work on the database area, they may have like better ideas of, of what designs would particularly excel yeah. or yeah, in like Elixir. Yeah. I think there's a talk during this conference on... There are like, two talks, actually. Uh, but on moving amnesia mm -hmm. towards... Uh, self-recovering from uh, from splits and stuff. So, uh, yeah. Because amnesia seems like an obvious thing to pick up, but it, it certainly has its challenges as well. It's not quite so plug-and-play if you run into problems. Mm -hmm. so. But amnesia gives you kind of like this, this idea uh, when you think about it. You know, you mm -hmm. start amnesia as an embedded database in your application code, right? And so disregarding a bunch of, you know, practical... Uh, challenges uh, that you have with Nisha, especially in distributed environment, like it gives you like key value storage with persistence and transactions and distribution 
which you know uh, has some room for improvements, and you know many people have kind of you know uh, sunk sunk trying to fix that. You know, so maybe we're going to see some better approaches. But uh, I think that like the general strategical idea of, of Nisia is what I like. You know, like here's your embedded database. You know, that you can use like without having to run something on the side, and it has it's concurrent and it has you know all the bells and whistles that you have with uh, you know Beam, right? Something I've seen also in the ecosystem is that we put a bunch of work in to kind of make sure that we are on the level of other ecosystems when it comes to observability, like open telemetry, having metrics, traces, logging, like that makes sense. But I also know that the beam is much more introspectable and observable than many other systems. Are there things you would like to see people explore there? I know Thomas DePierre released Orion, which is like this distributed tracing profiler that can give you a histogram of um, the timings for, for calling functions across your, your cluster. And it's like a web UI that just plug into Phoenix and mm. go. So that's, that's something I find interesting. And I think it would be... A, essentially impossible to do in many other languages. Um. I think, so when it comes to, to, to observation, I think one of the things that um, I've, I've been part of the Erlang community for 12, 13 years, and I've always seen, I've always found like really nice examples and applications of like taking uh, the observability that the beam offers and doing something like mind blowing with it. I remember, uh, I remember, I think it was a demo from uh, Michal Shlonsky. It was, I think it was called Erlang Performance Lab. At the time, Netflix came with this visualization of how like traffic is flowing through their nodes because if, imagine that if you're operating at Netflix scale, you have so many nodes, so they come up with this whole visualization system of how like a network is going through their nodes and so on, so they could visualize and understand it. And then Michal was like, oh, sure, I can, I can do the same for Erlang and Elixir. And he had a demo where you had all the processes and you could see the messages flowing through the processes. And I think, and and I, I, can, I can think of other things that I've saw, but I cannot describe them with such precision. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the interesting things here is that uh, it's great that the Erlang virtual machine allows for exploration, but also that I think there is kind of a question of like why those projects, they come up and they are short-lived, right? Mm -hmm. Because they are like, the, and, and I'm not saying short-lived, like I'm not giving any reason, but I think it's something that is worth reflecting because, and I think that's something that open telemetry can help address because uh, if you have a standard that, you know, everybody's using, because if you think about a large system, like you, you see this nice visualization, you have to run in production, you have to figure out all the mechanisms to run that. And uh, so I think when we are, when, what I'm trying to say is that when we go into the discussions of like, oh, what are the cool things that we like to see on, on, on the beam? And there is always the side of like, oh, we can do build this really cool thing, but you also have to find like what is the practical use case for this thing or how can you 
plug that into, into, allow people to plug that into production systems. So it will actually be useful for a longer period of time. And I'm not saying that what they did was useless, but I'm saying it's like, <laughs> it needs to be part of the problem solving, right? It's like, you know, uh, we can do all this cool stuff, but if we can't easily allow teams to put that in their dashboard or whatever they are using, it's not necessarily going to, to help. And that's where Autel helps, because we just need to export the data out of the Erling virtual machine, and they are now dozens, probably more than dozens of companies that can receive that data and show that uh, in interesting ways. Mm. And we need to continue going in, in, in that trend. Yeah, I think it's an absolutely kind of critical baseline to have, like to work with those standards and do everything that the other ecosystems do. But I'm curious if we can push that further. I see potential in, for example, the Erlang tracing facilities are strangely, impressively capable. Mm. And uh, for debugging a specific issue, that type of deal, where you want to dig into production code, ideally without shipping new updates. I, I think the tracing has a lot of potential there. It is. Uh, I think we're kind of uh, in a good place when it comes to that. So the foundation is, foundations are terrific. And uh, you know, since the release of uh, Fred uh, Herbert's recon, which was like I don't know that there's already many years since that was released. It's typically quite quite straightforward to use it in production. Uh, visualizations, as Jose mentioned, are nice. You know, there were like mm -hmm. a couple of these projects. I, I remember that there was one called called Erluby that did like a three-dimensional, I think, uh, view of the processes and dynamic view of, of everything that was happening. But like those are nice. But I agree that you know. Most probably, in most cases, just exporting to a well-known standardized format makes yeah. more sense. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's another area. It's like not only tracing. It's like just the tools that are in the Erlang virtual machine is amazing. So uh, there is a module uh, called uh, Instrument, I believe, uh, that comes in OTP. Has anybody used the Instrument module? All right, like four <laughs> or five hands. Yeah, that's that's like one, one percent. One of them hands. is from the OTP team, so it's kind <laughs> of like. Um, yeah, so, um, and somebody reached out to me, they're like, you know, um, we, we have this problem, like, uh, we, we, like memory is, the memory usage is blowing up, mm. and we, we don't know where it's coming from. And then, and then I went, like, to, to tools, because there is an application in Erlang that lists everything that it uses to instrument and, and find things in the system, tools or runtime tools, and I found this module there, and then it was like, well, it just kind of prints a... Um, a diagram it just gives you information of uh, where memory is being allocated in NIFs. So they were like, we suspect it's a NIF because we cannot find it like uh, in the usual uh, ways where you're going to inspect process. So we suspect it's a NIF. And then I'm like, okay, let me see what are the tools that I have. Like, and then I go to their link documentation. They are like five, six, seven different modules, and then like there's this, this instrument module. I'm like, okay, what is this? And like, oh, it shows how memory is being allocated inside NIFs. And then I was like, uh, and it's a function, it's just a function call that you do. It's like you call this function, or maybe you call a function to start measuring another to stop. Very easy API. I was like, all right, like have you tried this module? Connect to your node, run this. So I sent an email, 
And then, uh, and then like 15 minutes, they come back later. Oh, here are the results. Apparently, we have this NIF that is leaking memory. And we just replace it for another solution, another NIF. And the problem disappear. So it was like it was a one min one hour of email exchange for something they were like uh, really not knowing how to how to address that problem. And the problem was solved. They're like, okay, we, we know what it is. We'll use another solution next. And uh, and I think it's a great example of just like the tooling that is there. So one of the things that uh, I Maybe somebody wants to, to even provide a pull request because we have the Phoenix Live dashboard mm. uh, that comes with Phoenix applications. And I want you to have a button there where you say, please instrument my, my NIFs. And then you're just going to press this button and we're going to plot this graph mm. for you. And people now, now I don't even have to tell them, like, go to your remote shell. Just like, go to your dashboard, press that button, and come mm. back to me. Does that button exist, or do you want? No, yeah, yeah. somebody. Yeah. I think he we wants. have an open issue. Okay. Oh, yeah. uh, cool. He's fishing for for a pull request. Yeah, it will <laughs> exist in a week. <laughs> nice one. Yeah. Uh, but that's kind of where I would see, like, a small tracing utility for just digging. As well, yeah. Where like, you could just uh, set on like the trace of your uh, code per some criteria yeah. or something. Observer like that. comes or, with tracing yeah. as well, right? Yeah. I, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, profiling as well, for example. I, I used to have those cases too. You know, like. I just want to profile these bits of code or something like that. So th there, there's like a bunch of improvements that could be or yeah. extensions that could be done. Right? Yeah, and on this note, uh, I'm almost sure that Erlang OTP27 is also going to come with a heap profiler. Okay. So now it can also profile memory usage. So <laughs> cool. it was a contribution from uh, Max from WhatsApp. So it's really nice. Mm. Sasha, you were going into the deployment and ops side. and. Whenever I talk to someone who's not doing Elixir, not doing Erlang, about Elixir and Erlang, and they've heard of it, the first thing they say is hot code updates. Oh, yeah. Does that have a place in, in this future deployment scenario? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, hot code updates are, are like, you know, uh, I think that many of us uh, who, who are like, have been in there long enough, you know, in, the, in Erlang land, they would say, like, don't, don't use hot code updates. You know, that's like a typical advice. And I feel sorry that we have that kind of advice uh, because it's such a powerful tool, but it, it, it is difficult to do it at such a granular level, right? So uh, it's like super fine grained. And probably you don't need something like that. But what if we could find some kind of a middle level, you know, where you know I, I, I could just you know say, I'm going to push new updates and I just want to restart some larger part of my supervision tree rather than you know dealing with all these updates of state of the gen, gen server and something like that. And so then you have more like kind of like a microservices style of deployment where you just have you know push the new version of the code and restart something without restarting everything and you don't have to reason about you know state changes and uh, things like that as much, right? So uh, I I think that like all the Building pieces are there. Basically, you can do this with a custom, you know, uh, update script. Uh, but you just uh, are lacking some kind of uh, higher-level, easy-to-use interface that mm -hmm. that you know you could use to make to make it happen. Uh, I think that that's like a nice nice thing to explore. I was going to do this at some point, but just you know, never never managed to find the time. Yeah, if if someone wants to pick it up, ping me after this talk. You know. Yeah, I I agree with exploring something like that. It can be interesting, and I think it's also. Like, the, if you don't use the capability being there, uh, it means that you can build things on top. So I remember, like, one of, I think it was on the first Elixir conference ever, one of my favorite talks was from a company that they, they, they had, like, on, online poker game, right? And the thing is that 
now, now imagine that you want to, to upgrade, uh, upgrade your software that is running production, mm. right? It happens that the games, they last very long. They can last very long. And it happens that people are playing poker all the time. So it's like there's like no <laughs> time where you can say, oh, you're going to stop like your game in the middle so we can like upgrade your code, right? Like the game is live all the time. And it's a, it's a live game, so it's not, you know. Uh, so they use all the infrastructure that the Erlang virtual machine has to, to like to implement their own version of um, uh, of deployment, which is like, well, if this game is running, we are going to transfer the game to a new node. We are going to keep them in sync, and we are going to tell the players to migrate, and everything works transferably. But they use the foundations that were there for their specific use case to 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 solve that problem. So uh, that's a a fun anecdote that I wanted to share. But there is also I have a, a minor uh, gripe with uh, whenever people they are talking about like. Uh, Something like hot code upgrades, for example, or, or like uh, using Erlang in the context of Kubernetes. They're like, well, you know, like what is what is the point of using Erlang if I'm if you know I'm I cannot do hot code upgrades or if nobody's using hot code upgrades, and and I it's like and I and I dislike that because it's like it's saying you're not going to use Erlang for something that you. For something that it has, mm -hmm. but you chose not to use, and nobody has that, so you're not getting that anyway. It's like saying, you know, I don't want you to give me a Fer uh, Ferrari because the roads I live nearby can only drive 100 kilometers per hour maximum. You know, mm -hmm. it's like <laughs> it, it doesn't make sense, right? So it's like um, uh, I think I like to say, you know, in the worst case scenario you're going to, to deploy Erlang and Elixir like you deploy any other technology. You can totally do that, mm. right? And the fact that you're not using the extra features that Erlang has and nobody has should not count as a detriment to, <laughs> to Erlang or Elixir. It's kind of, you know, it's not logical. Um, it's also like a... It's not like you're not going to use any of goodies of, of the beam, right? You know, people that just focus on like one thing, and it's like, yeah. yeah. And, and you still have yeah. a lot to use. You still have the concurrency. You still have the functional programming model, mm. right? You still have, as we're talking, all the uh, introspection that you have into the system. There's still mm. a lot to use. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I've talked to Frank Hanleth of Nerves, and he says one of his fastest like iteration processes is just pasting modules into IEX. It's like, oh, I have it running on device. Mm. Something's wrong. I need to switch out this little bit of code. All right, paste the new module. Just straight over SSH. It's fine yeah. <laughs> because we can do that. Actually, how many have pasted code into production? Production. Uh, yeah. Uh, some hands went down, but most stayed up. Yeah. All right, yeah, yeah. Let's three hands went up, right? Three hands. Now people, people do this. Right? I mean, that demo. You know, how many have seen the soul of Erlang and Elixir talk? You know, okay. So there, there are like some people, and there's like this demo where I kind of connect to the system and trace it, and then you know do a live upgrade just by you know pushing. Some, and that's like the true story, actually. You know, so it's just of course a dumbed down version. Uh, but it's literally what happened. You know, production was hanging, and like it happened during the weekend, and uh, like the whole weekend we didn't, we weren't aware of it. And I was debugging this on like Monday morning. You know, nobody was complaining <laughs> really. Uh, things were working fine. You know, and I was debugging this, and then uh, uh, and then you know I just tested the hypothesis by you know doing the hot 
upgrade, even though you know we didn't do it anyway. You know, and I, I don't suggest it, but I just you know did this. And this is like it's, you still have that option. That that's the yeah. point, right? Even though you don't necessarily use it regularly, right? Yeah. No. And and there is the other thing. Like people, you know, people are saying like, oh, but we don't use hot code upgrades. And I'm like, are you sure? Because every time you're using Phoenix in development, and the code <laughs> just yeah. upgrades when you do a new request. Precisely. That's using hot code upgrades, and that's using. Uh, something that comes with the VM and um, you know other communities the amount of work they need to do to get that same thing uh, it's a solve a problem in there but it's all additional tooling additional complexity mm -hmm. that exists around it and it's frequently like it's just a, not, just an approximation of of what we get yeah, yeah. it's basically you know the, the Robert Worthing's first rule uh, I forgot exactly how it goes but like any any you know, uh, concurrent, uh, sufficiently complicated concurrent program in other languages is like an informal bug ridden ad hoc implementation of half Erlang, something like that. Yeah. 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 I think we're approaching the end of our time, and I think that's a pretty good note to end on. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, both of you, for uh, for joining me on this, and uh, we'll catch you next time on Beam Radio. Thanks. Thank you.